Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this latest episode of the First Word Podcast. Uh, my name is Alex, and my co-host Mike is not actually on our episode this week. He's been on a European holiday for the last few weeks and has taken a break. Uh, but I wanted to record a special episode with a, a different guest today and talk specifically about film festivals, which, which has been a part of my life for a, a good decade now. Um, so to to have this conversation and talk about a couple different topics, films and film festival experiences and all of this, um, my guest today is Daniel Joyot. Sorry, that doesn't that isn't correct. Uh, how do I say your name correctly? <laughs> That's all right, uh, Joyot. So uh, Daniel is a, or do I, should I refer to you as Dan? Uh, Daniel, please. Okay, Daniel is a, a freelance writer, a freelance writer and festival nomad, as he has uh, self described to me. Um, and uh, I'm glad to have you on the show today and to talk about um, festivals. Uh, if you could give a little bit of your, your background and what you've been doing and, and your relation to festivals as well. Yeah, so I, um, I've, this was my 10th Toronto International Film Festival, so I've been going there since 2010. Um, I've worked at a lot of uh, regional festivals around the Midwest. Um, I worked uh, the last four summers for Michael Moore's uh, festival in northern Michigan, Traverse City. I was a publications editor for three years at Sundance. Um, a screener for two summers uh, with AFI, and then I also do a lot of freelance writing. I've done some um, Oscar pieces for Vanity Fair over the last few years, uh, some pieces for The Verge. I write for Movie Maker magazine and also for a website called Filmonomy. Awesome. So you are, uh, like me, very experienced with, with not only the film world and film writing, but festivals in general. Um, and so before we get into the, the meat of the film discussion, um, I wanted to address something specifically as I am now kind of the, the bad boy of the film world for uh, <laughs> who, who knows what I actually did because I didn't really do anything. But I wrote a letter, um, which uh, the funny thing is I know a lot of listeners probably have no idea, but it, it, this ruffled a lot of feathers in the film critic community. Um, and I want to address this because actually... This year, and the reason I wanted to have a film festival discussion on this podcast, this, this episode, was that this year I've been going to a lot of festivals. I was at Sundance at the beginning, then Berlin, uh, and then Cannes. Uh, and then in the fall, I was at the Venice Film Festival, which is around the same time as the Telluride Film Festival. And then I skipped Toronto, which you went to, Daniel. And then I went to uh, the San Sebastian Film Festival instead, which is in northern Spain. Um, mostly because I had been to Toronto before and I was too much to go to both Venice and Toronto and everyone told me, oh, go to San Sebastian, it's a good festival, they have a lot of Toronto films. And of course the lineup came out and I'm getting ready to go and all the Toronto films I'm excited to see are not in San Sebastian. <laughs> um, but that's simply the fate of festivals, especially now that I live in Europe, it's just harder to get a lot of these American films that I'm really excited about over here. Um, I think uh, Ford vs. Ferrari is like just premiering at the... Zurich Film Festival, I think, and it hasn't played anywhere else in Europe yet, which is a bit strange because I actually thought it would have been in Venice. There was rumors that it might play there, and it, it never did. Um, so before we get into the films, I want to talk briefly about this, this uh, what, I, what I would say is the embargo discussion um, that originated at Venice. Um, and my history with film festivals, and, and Daniel, you can learn about this as I explain it, um, is that I, I started my website in 2006, uh, which is 13 years ago at this point. And um, ever since that beginning year, I've been addicted to film festivals because the very, like six months after starting the website, the very first film festival I went to was the Sundance Film Festival in January of 2007. And uh, I had built this website out of nowhere. It was kind of the, the blog heyday where everyone was starting up blogs. And so I launched this blog and it was really, you know, to talk about movies in general. And of course, I wanted to go to Sundance. So I, 
I drove my car from Colorado where I lived eight hours to Utah to go to the Sundance Film Festival. They actually, I applied for a press badge. They rejected me. And I went into the press office every single day for three days in a row, begging <laughs> them to give me a press badge until they finally did. And then similarly, I went to Toronto later that year, 2007, and uh, they also rejected me. <laughs> and Toronto is kind of notorious for rejecting press the first two, like first year or two you apply, if you're, if you're kind of like a startup website. Yeah. Um, and then eventually they see, because what I did at Toronto that year is I literally bought tickets every morning and went to just go see. I think I still had 30 films in Toronto that year just because I was like, I'm here. And even though I don't have a press badge, I'm just going to go to the festival and see everything. And That's I wrote what really, I did starting out yeah. in Toronto. I was, a, I was a ticket buyer there for several years before I started getting a press pass. Yeah, which is, which is actually the great thing about these festivals is we can't forget they are, like, as, as press now, I see it as like, oh, my job to go there. But I'm also like, these are public festivals. Yeah. And a majority of the attendees at these festivals are regular moviegoers. Sundance is great because you meet all these people who are like, oh, I come from, you know, North Dakota, and this is my one big trip every year to just come to Sundance and see films. And I'm like, wow, these are... Like truly dedicated people, yeah. um, and it's exciting to see all that. So basically, uh, that was my origin. I, I worked hard. I, I like you know uh, hit the pavement, as we say, to to do my job and to see films and to write about them, and spent many years establishing myself from 2007 on, and have spent all of that time going to festivals ever since. I think my first time in Cannes was 2009. And I was invited by a friend who's like, oh, you've got to come to this festival. And, you know, I thought, okay, I've heard about it, but I don't know if it's my thing. And then I went and I just got, like, I fell totally in love with it. Cannes is the polar opposite of Sundance being the, Sundance is the snowy, dead of winter, cold, you know, American festival. Cannes is the international middle of the summer on the beach festival. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. um, but I love them both equally. Those are my two favorite film festivals in the whole world. Uh, and anyway, so... That's my history with festivals. I've actually been doing it a long time. I, and yeah, I know I'm, I'm uh, advantaged in that I'm, I'm a white guy and that, um, that puts me on a position that, that gives me greater access. But at the same time, I did work from nothing to get into these festivals. And like you and like a lot of people, I started out having no press badge. I started out just being an addict of films, learning how to navigate the festivals. And I worked my way into the system and spent many years. So now I'm 13 years in. And I also was uh, one of the first uh, groups to join Twitter. I joined in 2007 after I was at the South by Southwest Film Festival that year and everyone was talking about it and I was like resistant to join. And then I joined a couple months later. Um, and the only other person who had beat me was uh, Peter from Slash Film. He's a good friend of mine. He had been in like January, he joined. And I remember like having that conversation with him like, what's the point of Twitter? You know, and then and it was like one of these, oh, you just say things on it. <laughs> and so I remember joining. And so literally I've been around on Twitter for 12 years now, which is uh, almost as long as it's been around. I think they've been around a couple more years before. But one of my favorite things about Twitter was this ability to communicate through Twitter and to to express our thoughts immediately and to have conversations through it. Over And of course, you know, I don't want to go and do it because it's a whole other topic. Twitter has evolved into something much more. I don't want to say dangerous, but just, you know, really <laughs> troublesome right now with the amount of vitriol on it and the, and the lack of care that Twitter has for doing anything about it. Um, but uh, that's aside the point, because the conversation here, what I'm trying to say is that over all of these years, 10, 12 years now I've been using Twitter, I've loved that ability to see a film and to immediately start talking about it. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing to me was that... Um, 
this is one part of the conversation I've wanted to say too, is that I've actually been planning to write an article where the headline is, I've created a monster. So when, when me and Slash Film and Film School Rejects, we all started our websites, uh, we were the ones who were beating the trades to publish things first. We would beat them at trailers, we would just run news extremely fast. We were just extremely fast because we were like nerdy kids who sat at home on our computers all day and had nothing to do just, but just write things up. And this really infuriated the trades because part of their game is like we have to be first on everything. And um, this, this insistence on our part to be first, which was you know, partially traffic related, but also just a, a desire to one-up them, actually caused them to be even more insistent on being first. So now, jumping ahead 12 years, what we get is these trades, and I don't want to you know, get in trouble, but I've heard stories from studios, and I'm not even making this up, I've heard stories from studios where these trades threaten the studio if they do not get first access to a movie, where they yeah. have to see it before everyone else, and they have to have the ability to, to run the review the moment the embargo breaks or the moment they're allowed to talk about it. They have to be first or they will, you know, whatever it is. I don't know what the threat is. Just a lot of, like, studios have been like, Alex, you don't understand how much pressure they put on us. And I'm like, I don't understand because I'm, you know, I'm not part of that world and I don't hear it. So I, I, I feel like I'm res partially responsible for, for pushing the trades to be that demanding and now I've kind of slacked off and been like, hey, I don't need to be first anymore. I like to tweet first, but I don't need to write my reviews first. A lot of my content goes up whenever it goes up, just because it's, it's a different world now, you know, 10, mm -hmm. 12 years later. So anyway, jump ahead to Venice. And Cannes has changed their policy in the last two years. Uh, and Venice has followed suit where they're now uh, concerned about the filmmakers and the reception the public has of a film that the press sees in the morning and that, that premieres publicly later in the evening. It originated with Cannes um, from stories where I've heard that, so the, the first screening in Cannes is a press screening at 8.30 a.m. and all the press see it and as soon as we get out of this film, we start talking about it. And mm -hmm. if the film is trash, which has happened a couple times, um, the Sean Penn Africa one is the, the one, the biggest example. Do you remember the name of that one? Maybe? I don't, to be honest. It was, it was just like every, it was, it was actually, everyone in the cinema was laughing at how bad it was. And it was just like, you know, panned across the board by everyone as like one of the worst films that's ever played at the festival. So then later in the evening, the film premieres at 7 p.m. and there's just this like dour mood over the whole thing, which is, you know, I don't want to, you know, get too much into that festival experience of like, yeah, if you made a bad film, you've got to accept it. And yes, the premiere will happen anyway, but uh, you know, people are still excited to be there even if the critics didn't enjoy it. There's, there is a, a clear divide between what critics like and what the public likes. Um, and everyone can make up their own mind anyway. That's why we all go see films. Mm -hmm. So because of this situation, the festivals in the last two years have suddenly started changing the system. And part of that is to save face for the filmmakers. They're afraid of that negativity that happens before. So it can, what they did is they moved the screenings in the schedule. So now we see the same, or we see the film at 7 p.m. at the exact same time as the public sees the film at 7 p.m. The reason Cannes did this is because they don't want an embargo. And so therefore that when we all get out of the film at 7 p.m., when it ends at 9 p.m., we can all talk about it. And the public has also seen it as well. And there isn't that, you know, oh, we're going to ruin whatever the experience is thing. So Venice, uh, which I've only been going to for three years, Cannes I've been going to for 10 years, Venice uh, hasn't actually done this yet. They, they still are stuck on this system of we'll show the film at some time, 
and we'll put an embargo on it and then we'll uh, like let the embargo up later. The problem is that Venice's timing is a bit weird. There's sometimes a 24-hour or 36-hour gap between when we see the film as press. And I mean like we, a thousand people in a cinema, see the film and then when the you know actual premiere of it is, is like the next night. And it's very strange because there's this huge distance between when we see it, when we start talking about it, what our thoughts are, everything that's come to mind as we're sitting in that cinema, which I think is a true communal experience. We're all there together in that cinema, watching movies together. And then between the difference between then and when we talk about it is so far that I feel like it, it, it actually completely kills a discussion other than we get to publish reviews as critics. So um, I wrote this letter basically calling out Venice being like, hey, this is not good. You're, you're, you're literally killing the conversation. Uh, you know, there's, there's some problems here with the fact that this can be solved. Can is an example of uh, an acceptable solution. You know, I don't, the schedule is a bit annoying, but hey, at least we're allowed to talk about films when we're there seeing them. And then most of the American festivals don't have embargoes. Sundance doesn't have an embargo, mostly because the, 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 the first screenings at Sundance in Toronto are usually public screenings anyway, or the film has already shown. Um, and therefore, everything I see at Sundance and everything in Telluride, too. I went to the Telluride Film Festival for eight years, and everything there isn't under embargo. As soon as it shows there, you can write about it. And same in Toronto. So all of these other festivals have that ability. Venice didn't. So I wrote this letter, and I used some, I guess I would say, harsh words. And I know people will be attempting to call me out on that. Like, oh, Alex, this is such a bad word to use. And that's a debatable thing here. Yes, my words were strong because I wanted to make an impact and I wanted to sort of remind people that there's something that truly matters to me. And one thing I wanted to say to people when they started responding to this is that I wouldn't have done this if I didn't feel truly passionate about wh what matters to me. Like, I don't want this negative attention on me. I love going to film festivals. I love writing about films. Um, and I just wanted to, to say, like, I, I want that freedom. I want that ability to talk about these films when we see them. And I wrote this letter so and there was this, sure, this huge, Sorry, just to make sure yeah. I understand. Yes, yes, Venice. go ahead, go ahead. Um, just to make sure I understand. You're saying that there was an embargo after the first public screening or after the first press screening before the public screening? No, there, there's, there's the press screenings, which are press and industry screenings. And right. then um, the embargo is always at the beginning of the first public screening, which... Um, the other thing that I, that I want to remind people about Venice, because a lot of people have no idea how it works in Venice, is that it's as people say, it's so easy to look up that time. But when you're a member of the press, my schedule is purely a press schedule. That's all they print and give to you. So mm -hmm. all I know is when the press premieres are. I have no idea what time that film is going to start. It's actually very hard because they, they double feature films. So the mm -hmm. evening screenings are two films back to back. And you have no idea like, oh, when does the later one start? 1030? Who knows? You know, it's not even listed on the schedule. And so a lot of it is this like vague, you got to just figure it out thing, which is ridiculous like why play this game and then a lot of it is just this waiting and and um as pointed out by others not only me but a lot of people the, the twitter conversation in venice is just dead so i was writing tweets up till a certain point and then i stopped um after having a conversation with the press department and after that point i stopped which was basically after the day joker premiered the venice twitter discussion just died there was just nothing like, no, it was almost like, like, are people seeing films here? Like, yeah, we are. And then here's a review when we're allowed to run our reviews. But that was it. And then a few days later, Toronto starts. And of course, I've been watching Toronto for 12 years now. And Toronto is just constant 
you know, tweets about this, that, this, that. And I love it. It's so exciting to me to just sit there and watch everyone be like, oh, I just got out of this movie. And it's amazing. Everyone, I, I was waiting for Joker. I'm just waiting for everyone's reaction to Joker. Because I, I think there's an importance in that immediate reaction. And it's different than the review you write. I think there's an importance in the immediate reaction, your response, what you think then as soon as it ends, which is usually what you tell your friend. Like if you're at a, a screening with a friend, you're like, hey, I, this is what I thought about it as soon as we get out. But I also admire how the discussion evolves. There's not only the response to the initial reaction, but then there's the actual, you know, well thought out reviews, which are just as fascinating and, and as important to the film community as anything, because they, they actually get into the depth that the initial reactions don't. And there's so much more there that you, like that I had never even thought about until I started reading these reviews. And I love all of that happening together. And it is, in my experience, having been to Sundance, Berlin, Toronto, Telluride, Venice, Cannes, all of these festivals, it's extremely healthy and good for the film community to have all of that. To limit some of that and to say this is bad and then to say only reviews are good is very like harmful. It's not only harmful, it's just uh, uh, like dangerously controlling in a way where you're like oh well uh, i don't like you know the way people tweet so we shouldn't do that there's a lot of young film critics right now on twitter that i i i'll admit i don't like the way they tweet about things it's you know sometimes it's a tweet that's like this film was good and i'm like how is that film criticism but at the same time i'm like you know what these are young people i admire them they're getting into the, the world just like i was when i was just starting and i actually am curious what they're thinking and I, and I follow them to see what more they have to say about each film every time. And I'm curious to see how they present their opinion. You know, some people literally use memes and GIFs to explain their feelings about a film, which is really cheesy, but also just as fascinating as a fully written long form review. Because that's a part of our modern discussion now, the way we communicate on Twitter and on social networks and, you know, between Instagram and Snapchat and everything is just as important as fully written reviews. And I think a lot of critics hate that which is not a discussion i want to get into today because they 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 come from that world of like reviews are all that matter and all these other things are bad yet at the same time this is the way a lot of young people express themselves and we have to learn to appreciate that so anyway that's that's my basic explanation of the story here i had a conversation with the, the, the press woman at venice who really did not care to have a conversation with me and um, she just uh, basically yelled back at me, you know, you can't do this, blah, 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 blah. And then it's a lot of this. The other, the other point that she made, and I've heard this from other people, is, well, if you don't want to follow our embargo rule, don't come to the festival, which I find so unbelievably shallow. Like, uh, my job is to see films. My job is to write about them. My job is to, to express my thoughts on films. I've been doing this for 13 years. Just because I, I'm not allowed to do that doesn't mean I shouldn't be allowed to come to your festival and do that. And me, me leading the way by saying what I'm doing is actually an example of what I think is healthy and good for the film community should not be a reason for me to say, oh, you shouldn't be at that festival. Um, and so anyway, now that I have you on the show, actually one of the things I wanted to do was have a discussion with you uh, or a debate or whatever you want to call it, because aside from my letter, which is its own thing that people didn't like the way I wrote it, um, my concern is more on actual embargoes and, and the importance of them. And um, a reminder to anyone who's listening who, who, who doesn't like what I have to say is that my whole letter was specifically about film festival embargoes, not about general embargoes, not about studio embargoes, which we all follow, 
you know, I have to deal with them on a regular basis. I saw Rambo, and we're not allowed to talk about it till it, the, the <laughs> midnight it opens. But that's just because it's a bad film, you know. Sure. But it's specifically about film festivals because throughout all of my 13 years of doing this, I've been very driven and appreciative, and I see the value in the instant reactions, and I see the value in the discussion that happens immediately after a film ends, and how truly harmful it is to prevent that. Um, but I know a lot of people believe in embargoes, and I know a lot of the response from from uh, reasoned, or sorry, well-reasoned responses where a lot of people saying, you know what, I see the value in embargoes, and I see I see the worth of them. So I want to hear your take on it. Um, you, you expressed interest in having a discussion with me anyway, so I'd love to, to hear your side of it. Yeah, so um, the first TIFF I went to was 2010, and I didn't join Twitter until 2011. So my first TIFF was, um, you know, it was, it, it wasn't pre-Twitter, but it was pre-Twitter for me. Right. And I, you know, there's a way that I look back at that first TIFF and, and I see kind of an almost purity in the way that I was able to go to films there and react to them, um, you know, in this completely, um, you know, in, in a vacuum, because I, I went into everything at that festival without having any sense of what anyone thought about it. And, mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't I wasn't primed or in, in any way uh, my mind wasn't ready to go in a certain direction based on what I'd already seen people reacting to something. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a huge value in that. You know, it, it occurred to me as as we were talking about the debate that it in a way it's almost like a different version of the debate on theatrical distribution versus streaming in the sense that it's really a debate about a is there a, a quote-unquote right way to see a film and b is it okay to try and preserve that through enforcement mm. in the sense that i you know i think it is better for people to go to into a film cold and not know right. what anyone else thinks of it yeah um, and i I, I agree in the sense that we have that ability when we go to festivals. That's what's great about festivals. Yeah, and so, you know, like I, when I think about the Toronto um, press and industry schedule, you know, the, the press um, screenings typically start long before the public screenings, but the early press screenings are only films that played either Cannes or Sundance because they don't want, you know, opinions out there about things that haven't premiered to the public yet. And so this year, um, there was only one film that I saw uh, the press screening of before it had actually even had its public premiere. And that was the, um, the documentary about the new Bruce Springsteen album, Western Stars. Oh, right, right. And I went to a private event of that um, the morning before the gal premiere, which was at 930 at night. And so there was an embargo for that that I obeyed because, you know, we the screening we saw was at 10 a.m. We went to lunch afterward, you know, and the embargo was until 11 p.m. because the the uh, public screening started at 930 and it was a 90 minute movie. And, you know, on, on the in the first hand, I didn't mind obeying that at all because I, you know, coming from the standpoint of having originally gone to Toronto as. Um, just a ticket buyer and as someone who was not on Twitter, I, you know, feel like I have an extreme value for the ability to go into a movie completely cold. Mm -hmm. um, and on second hand, I liked that, you know, so I, I left this movie at noon and I now had 11 hours to think about 
and ruminate on exactly what I liked or didn't like about the movie and everything that it made me feel and everything that it did well. And, you know, that, that I had 11 hours to think about that before there was any pressure, not just externally, but pressure that I would put on myself to put an opinion of the film out in public. And I really liked, you know, frankly, I, I loved having that time to just kind of walk around with the movie sitting in my head and, and no little voice on my shoulder saying, why haven't you tweeted about this yet? Why haven't you tweeted about this yet? Mm -hmm. I mean, my response to that is basically, that's your choice entirely. And I, and I certainly respect that and I admire that. And I think there's a lot of people who do gain that value in that. But why do I have to follow your rule? And why do you, what, like, why do I have to be limited in what I want to do and the way I want to express myself just because you need that time? Like, you're more than welcome. And, and look, the, the, this reminds me of one thing a lot of people say, which is that, oh, as a website, I won't have traffic if I don't run it, you know, at, at the first time, the moment the embargo breaks. Um, which, like, it, the, the, the devil's advocate is if there wasn't an embargo, that means you don't have that 11 hours to think about it and you just have to rush a review. But as a website owner, the traffic, I can assure you the traffic is just the same if you were to take that 11 hours, if there was no embargo, and to still take your time to write it. And I do that a lot myself at festivals. Like, if I see a film that I, I need that time to think about, I give myself a day or two or sometimes three, and I'll still run my review two or three days later, and it'll still get traffic. And that's what's really fascinating to me is, like, all of these things that people claim aren't necessarily true about traffic. But also, you're more than welcome to do that and take your time to think about it without having to tell me to limit my time to think about it. And that I think we can both have that freedom to do that. I think that in some ways it's, it's an issue of civility in that, you know, I think as recently as a few years ago, it was probably very easy to say to people in mass, you know, if you don't want to see what people think about something, just don't get on Twitter. But I think yeah. the, the level that Twitter has proliferated society has, has fundamentally changed. And it's now not necessarily a reasonable thing to ask people to not get on in, in that, you know, like I, I follow a large swath of different types of people on Twitter. I mean, my Twitter timeline is it's, it's a lot of film critics and film pundits, but it's also, I'm hugely into the NBA and it's basketball analysts. And I, you know, am hugely into following politics and it's, you know, political pundits. And if I'm, you know, if I hear that, oh, Trump did something idiotic on Twitter and I want to get on Twitter to see what that is, I shouldn't have to also risk seeing people spoil a movie that I'm about to see in three hours. Does that make sense? Yeah, but that, but that's, uh, that's not, but why should we force no one to talk about it just because of your personal concern? Well, I would I mean, agree. It's, if, it's what you were saying earlier about like the difference between enforcing something just to ha just to preserve the experience versus personally taking the time to make sure that you preserve that experience for yourself. Like, yes, yeah, so, as, as a film goer, um, especially living in Europe, sometimes it takes a few weeks for a film to open there that has already opened in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I have to sit there and like literally everyone's written you know a hundred reviews. And I have to completely dodge this, but I don't begrudge those people for writing those reviews and speaking about it and, and, and literally having spoiler conversations. It's basically my job to avoid that if I want to remain pure. But it's not my job and not my place to tell these people not to do that just because I want to remain pure. That's what I find interesting. Yeah, I agree in the sense that, I mean, movies open 
you know, all over the world in wide, wildly different times. And even at a festival, you know, there are multiple screenings. And if you don't yeah. see a first screening of something, you see a third screening instead, you're inevitably going to find out what people thought about it before yeah. your third screening. Um, I'm totally sympathetic to that. I guess where I draw the line is I think the people who see the public world premiere of something deserve the ability to go in cold. But what, what, why? <laughs> I mean, I mean, why, why do I have to not speak to, like, can't they do that on their own in a way? Like, can't you just say, well, it, it, it like that idea of, well, I, I'm just playing a response to you. It's like, yeah, no, it's okay. I, mean, I, I think like, the why is, you know, so, so you said why I think the why is, the same way you can ask why about anything that people collectively believe matters to them. Uh, um, like, and, like spoilers in general. <laughs> yeah. And, and ultimately, you know, I think instead of asking why when people say, but this matters to us, you just have to kind of say, okay, you know, so, so it matters to you. I will do my best to respect that. But I would say what matters to me is the ability to speak as soon as a film ends. That's what matters to me. So why can't you respect that? Well, it's a majority minority issue. Um, you know, it's it's one of the tenets, I think, of living in a dem democratic society that if more people want one thing than want the other thing, you have to in some way be prepared to give precedent to the thing that more people want. I don't agree with that at all. I, I, I of course, I, of course, believe in democracy, but I don't think that uh, the solution is to make every because this isn't as simple as like my ability to get a passport and leave America. That's a much greater issue than like, I'm just talking about. And the weird thing to me is that if, if this were an across the board thing, like every festival in the world had this policy, then it would make sense. But, and, the, and this is again, why Cannes did what they did to show things at the same time so that they didn't have to limit people when they see it. So that yeah, and Toronto other, mostly like, does every the other same festival. Thing. Yeah, every other festival I go to allows me to do that. And if you sit down and compare the, the conversations, they're so much more active and engaged at these other festivals because of that. Do you, do you recognize that? Like, when you're in Toronto, are you following the Twitter conversations that are going on and reading oh, about yeah. other I mean, stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I mean, every single screening I see in Toronto, I'm on my phone as the credits are rolling, thinking about what the tweet is. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I've, you I've even talked about this before that, that often I'm writing a tweet in my head while the movie is still on, which I yeah, hate yeah. myself for doing. And I wish I could get out of it. But sadly, I think that's just where our brains are in 2019. <laughs> I, I agree, except that my caveat is that I consider it notes in my mind. I think like the thoughts I'm thinking to put into a tweet are also things that I can extend into a review. And then thankfully I'm remembering them because these are also things I want to put in my review. And that's part of it. I'll be like, I'll write tweets and then some of them I'll save or not, or not even send or just delete because I'm like, oh, this is actually a better sentence that I could expand for a review and I'll save it for that because it doesn't fit into the 240 characters I have on Twitter. Yeah. Um, the other thing I guess I would say about the debate is that any career um, path has... Uh, codes of etiquette for that path. And that's not to say that you can't disagree with the codes of etiquette. I mean, you know, to be frank, some codes of etiquette are are stupid bullshit. Um, <laughs> I'm not I'm not disagreeing with that concept at all. I'm not saying that applies to this one. But in general, I, you know, when you enter a line of work, I think you have to make a tacit agreement to obey what that uh, fields views its etiquette as. 
I mean, that's, it's an interesting one because if you actually break it down and you really look at the truth of what's going on, there's a lot of really terrible things that no one talks about in the industry and no one wants to admit, like the way the trades act. You know, this isn't really relevant to the conversation, but for, for the first five, six years, uh, our websites were running, referring to Slash Film and to uh, Film School Rejects and to Collider, because Steve was part of our group too. Anytime we would break a news story, the trades would rip it off and not credit us. And yeah. Deadline, Deadline especially was a really, really bad one. It never, like not even mentioning the name. And they would just steal these scoops that like Collider was, especially nowadays as well, they're really good at getting great scoops. And Steve is really good at calling them out when they don't. And he's basically, he's known since the deadline has existed, since the Nikki Fink days, that uh, they, they specifically would never. And it's just this like egotistical attitude of, oh, we're trades and you're some blog, so we don't care about you. And I'm like, if you want to talk about etiquette and ethics, then this is a, a, a greater discussion here. Um, and I know, I know what your point is saying, which is like, well, I have to follow the rules. But I... I think this is a stupid bullshit rule. I really think embargoes are stupid bullshit rules at Fessel. And I, I want to, to lead the charge in saying, you know what, I'm not going to follow it. And if you want to penalize me, go ahead and try. But wh why am I penalized for, for speaking my mind? It's literally, and I know it's in Italy, so it doesn't count in America, but it's literally limiting my freedom of speech. It's like saying, oh... You, how dare you speak negatively about that film, which is something that critics fight for all the time. I'm allowed to say this film sucks, but just because I'm allowed to speak about that film, oh, suddenly I'm in trouble at a festival. When it's like, this is my job to do that, to have my voice to speak. And well, I do so, it all year long for 13 years now. So I have two thoughts on that. One, I don't think it's limiting your freedom of speech at all. It's just putting a consequence on your freedom of speech, which is... Which is literally limiting my freedom of speech. Well, well but, it, but, the, but the point it's not of the in, the sense that, is... in the sense that, you know, any job you have, you're, you're free to tell your boss to go fuck himself, but there's a consequence to that. Your boss will probably fire you. You know, you can disobey embargoes. You're, you're free to do that. The consequence is you may not, you know, get invited back to the next screening. I don't think that's limiting freedom of speech because freedom of speech is about government persecution, not you know, the, the, the penalties incurred, um, by a commercial entity, which is what, you know, all festivals and all studios and publicists are. Yeah. But also I, I kind of disagree with that in the sense that, uh, every festival you ever go to loves to give these speeches about how we care about the freedom of expression and filmmakers are artists and they're allowed to express themselves any way we want. We're going to play any film we want because it's freedom of expression. So I'm like, if they're going to come out and say that, then why don't they stand behind press's freedom of expression as well? The last thing, um, the last thought I have is yeah. <laughs> that I, you know, so like I said, the, the Bruce Springsteen documentary at TIFF this year was my first major experience with an, um, with an embargo. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be quite honest, I kind of viewed it as a superpower because normally when I'm at a festival, as soon as the credits start rolling, it is a race with, you know, the other 2000 people in that screening to get a tweet out. And, and I, I hate how, you know, honestly pathetic I feel when I, when I take part in that race and I, and I'm, you know, worrying about getting seen amidst, you know, all these other people that are tweeting about the same thing and, and the, the race to have the first hyperbolic opinion, you know, the, I, I hate that that's what happens, and I hate myself for participating in it. Yeah. With what happened with the Springsteen film this year, 
you know, like I said, I got, I got out of the film, the private screening at noon, the embargo was till 11 PM, which is, um, what time the public premiere ended that 11 hours. Wasn't just time to think about the movie, but it was also time to ensure that when the embargo ended at 11 PM, that I was able not to have a tweet up, but to have a review up. And that was amazing to me. It was the first time, you know, in my life that I'd ever, you know, the moment that people are allowed to publicly to publicly state an opinion about a film, I wasn't limited in stating an opinion that was X amount of characters. It was that I wrote, you know, 1500 words. Mm. And I thought that was just this amazing ability that, you know, when this screening ended, this public screening ended and everybody is, you know, frantically tweeting about it, that all of a sudden I had a 1500 word review on Twitter mm. while, uh, while everyone else is fighting for what, you know, the, the nine words they can fit on Twitter would be. And I just <laughs> thought that was an amazing superpower in the, in, and I feel like when this happens to you, when you're under embargo and you've seen a, you know, a press and industry screening and you have 12 hours before the embargo ends that, that you have that time not to, um, to craft a tweet of what you thought about the film, but to craft a whole review. And that's an amazing ability that I don't think people, you know, often have. And, and I think you just need to reframe it, not as about what you're not allowed to say, but in about that you have the time to say so much more than anyone else is going to be able to say. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, I would say that's subjectively not true because basically you have that complete freedom to spend as you could write a review a year from now you have from the moment the film ends you have all the time in the world it is not conditionally related to the embargo it has nothing to do with the embargo it's all 100 percent on you and the embargo is purely a form of control that's it and, and if you're saying the only way you can truly think about a film is if there's a form of control that is a bad thing for a free society we shouldn't have to have control to tell us how to think we should but have the freedom notion, and ability to do that. Yeah, but by that notion, any consequence is a form of control. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, but we can't live in a society free of consequences. It's just not how yeah, it but works. What, but, but, I mean, not to get into this discussion, but this idea that if, if no one follows rules, we're going to live in a chaotic society is complete and total nonsense. It's, it's, that's just like a conjecture that people make and love to talk about, but it's not remotely true in any way, shape, or form. Because, and I love to remind people of this, Everyone breaks rules probably every hour of their life and breaks yeah. laws and breaks all of this. And guess what? We don't live in a chaotic society. And even if there isn't a consequence, nothing bad happens. Society continues. <laughs> and, and I think to me that's – the bottom line to me is like you can do everything you just said without an embargo. It's all on you. And we shouldn't have to tell others that they have to follow that same rule if they don't want to. It's, well, it's completely your choice. And I know what you say about pressure. But that is still on you. That's not on, that shouldn't be on me. I don't have to, like, if I can control my pressure and if I can deal with that pressure and take my time to write my reviews and, and speak my mind 12, 14, 24 hours later the way I want to, I can do that without an embargo and deal with the pressure. And I shouldn't have to tell someone else how to do their job and, and rules and laws and controls they should have on doing their job. And to me, that's my bottom line is like, I agree with everything you just said, and I, and I know why critics love having that time and ability to think, but that, that is not related to the embargo at all. That's conditionally 100% in your own mind and 100% in the editor's mind. And as a person who runs my website, I know that it's actually perfectly fine if you're not first, and it works fine. <laughs> you know, this is all possible. That's my, that's my point. That's my kind of like final statement. It's like, 
I actually agree with what you're saying, but it is not conditionally related to the embargo in any way. Yeah, that's okay. So I think this is a good segue to talk about the films because I suspect yes. we can um, hit hit back on some of these society elements when we talk about Joker, which I know we're also going to disagree on. <laughs> yeah, well, I, okay, so you were in Toronto and I was in Venice, so there's a couple of films we've crossed over on, Joker being one of them. Let's just get that out of the way. We're going to, for, for listeners, we're going to do a whole podcast on it later, but for now, I just want to hear your thoughts and and I'll express mine, and we'll 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 start with Joker. That's the big one. Yeah. So let's let's put a clock and limit ourselves to like five minutes on this, because otherwise this could get <laughs> could get ugly. Because yeah, I'll yeah. I'll be I'll be um I won't bury the lead here. I hated Joker in a way that I have not hated in a movie. You know, I can't remember. I mean, it used to be whenever people ask me what's the worst movie I'd ever seen, I would say Only God Forgives. But I probably <laughs> hated Joker more than that. Wow. Okay. Okay. I'm I'm curious what. But, okay, my first question for you is, you can at least admit that there's some artistic elements to it, right? Like Joaquin Phoenix's performance and the cinematography and the score. Um, yeah, I will... <laughs> but that's I it, will... from your perspective. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, look, the movie's well-crafted. I won't deny that. I will say that I don't find Phoenix's performance to be as amazing as uh, some people. I mean, look, Phoenix is one of our greatest actors, yeah. and he is always good at, at a yeah. baseline. So I'm not trying to say he's in any way bad in the film. But I did not see his performance as any kind of um, award-worthy achievement. I thought it was just, you know, good. Right. But what? So, but now you have problems with the way. Actually, I've been reading this a lot. Now the reviews have been coming out that the film has basically nothing to say. Is that your feeling too? Um, I, I am less of the camp that it has nothing to say, and more of the camp that it's saying something. It's just saying something terrible. <laughs> what is it saying is terrible then? What do you mean by so, that? So I'm I'm just gonna read verbatim the 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 first paragraph of what I'm currently writing about it. Okay. Um, watching Joker felt no different to me than watching the worst kind of grievance for profit Fox News segment. It attempts <laughs> to seize on a collective white male no one wants to fuck me resentment, weaponize it in the name of a mega corporation's bottom line and give absolutely zero shits about the collateral damage it inflicts on its audience's views about the world. Mm. So that's where I stand on that. Yeah, no, I I mean, the, the weird thing is that I kind of agree with you. I just don't see it as uh, dangerous as you do. Like, I think the, and, and this is where the whole taxi driver comparison comes in. It's like, I think that's the point of the film, which is weird because it's like, it's the same with Taxi Driver in any movie that, that the character is a really despicable person. You're like, why are we watching a movie about a, a really terrible person that we're not supposed to like and we're supposed to condemn everything they do? What's the point in that? And yet there so, is, if the, if the artistry is worthwhile enough and if there is something being said, I think there is a point. I don't know if Joker has that. I, I admire the, the technical aspects more than I do the story, but what? What is your... <laughs> Well, um, I don't know whether it, I have a counter argument to the to the taxi driver thing, but it's hard to get in. Well, probably impossible to get into without talking about the way Joker ends. So I don't know whether you want to get into spoiler territory or not. No, because I'm going to save that for our next episode. Let's just I mean, I think I know what you're saying, but yeah. So I guess I'll all say to keep it to keep it um, cryptic enough is that. Uh, the ending of Taxi Driver does not celebrate Travis Bickle, and I think that the typical interpretation of um, what happens at the end is that that's all in Bickle's head as he's bleeding to death. Uh, the ending of Joker, I feel like, not just celebrates the character, but 
dramatically warships him and and elevates him to a sort of messiah level. Yeah, and I think the only reason I would say that makes sense is because it's a comic book character, which gets into that discussion of like it's Taxi Driver masquerading under a comic book movie facade, which it yeah. sort of is, but it is it, it's like there's a there's a mythology to the character and to the world itself, which they touch upon purely for the sake of recognizing it but that's that's to, to me the only legitimacy behind what it's doing because you can't deny that there are joker fans in the world like when i go to comic book conventions i see more joker shirts than i do any other shirt oh yeah and, i agree i mean i'm a comic no. book guy too and i also um i see the same thing um the thing that worries me most about joker and this again i i guess is a sort of vague comparison to taxi driver is that when you compare something like Joker to Taxi Driver, I think, e even though the comparison is obvious and it's a comparison that Todd Phillips wants us to draw, mm -hmm. I don't think it's a fair comparison in the sense that when people saw Taxi Driver in 1976, Travis Bickle was not a, was not a you know, intellectual property character that existed in the world. Mm -hmm. Joker is a character that has existed for 80 years and has a legion of undying fans. There is a lot of um, toxic fandom issues with some of those fans. And what especially worries me about Joker is, and I was racking my brain about this earlier, I can't think of a single other uh, film about a revered cultural icon where people, where a significant portion of its audience will leave the theater knowing that they could personally do everything they just saw happen on screen you know you you can't leave a batman movie or an indiana jones movie or a star wars movie thinking i'm gonna go home and do those things like that because they're not feasible things to do well say so you you wish you could, i wish i could have a lightsaber and yeah go fight of course the Sith, of course i can't but, yeah. but you can't immediately go home and, and live out what you just saw right, right. with with the joker movie you you very literally could do that and this isn't i'm not trying to fearmonger and say that that's exactly what people will do but we've never seen a movie that that allows that before and i am honestly worried about what it will provoke yeah that's okay before we keep talking about that, i think that's a good point to say I'm actually very curious to see how it plays this weekend. And I want to follow up discussions after it opens this weekend. Because I think I, I've been, ever since I saw it in Venice, I've been waiting patiently for this weekend to just see. Not, I mean, I don't want to say anything bad is going to happen. I just mean, I just want to see what the, what the audience thinks, what the general public thinks and how they yeah. react. And that's why, I, I mean, everyone made fun of my tweet. But that's literally why I wrote there's going to be a before and after this opening weekend moment. Uh, based on early predictions, it's going to make, I think it's like 80 million at least in the U.S. So that's going to be a major number where people are actually going to see it. And I want to know, do they hate it? Do they love it? Is it a mixed? Is it like, you know, you know I just, I'm just so curious to see what happens. And, and obviously in our next episode, we'll follow up on the, the discussion and what happens yeah. and what, what everyone is. Um, so I want to ask end you, this part real fast yeah. by saying one good thing about Joker. <laughs> okay. Um, in a vacuum, I am happy that DC is trying something different. And they seem to have uh, stopped trying to beat Marvel at their own cinematic universe uh, game and are yeah. trying to, you know, toy with more auteur-driven cinema. I think that is a very good idea and a good direction for DC to go in to compete with Marvel. It's just this is not the movie I wanted to see arrive out of that. <laughs> I actually, I 100% agree with you there. 
Um, so I want to ask, actually, since you hated this one, was there anything else you hated in Toronto this year? Like, really disliked completely? Uh, no, that was the only one. Uh, well, I, okay, so there was one movie called True History of the Kelly Gang that I really didn't like. I would oh, not I say I have, like, a it. passionate huh. hatred for it. Yeah. I just thought it was... Oh, man. It, it, it's, it has an interesting anachronistic style, and I had some appreciation for what it tried to do, but it was just an ugly, grimy movie about nothing. You know, so, so you asked in the beginning about Joker, did I think that it was about nothing? And I said, no, actually, I think it's about all these awful things. The true history of the Kelly Gang is the movie that I thought was actually about nothing. But isn't it about, like, a real criminal or something? Yeah, it is. I just, you know, I, I, I have a very good um, post-screening Q&A etiquette, and I, you know, honestly like to believe of myself that I, you know, never ask bad questions that makes anyone on the stage uncomfortable. Um, there has never been a movie where I've more wanted to ask, what do you want people to get out of this than, <laughs> than with that film? And I didn't ask that. I would not do that. But that's what I wish I could have asked. Oh, this is really fascinating because I heard nothing but good things on Twitter about it. And I'm, I'm actually, yeah, it, I was makes... surprised by that. I would say yeah. that was the only <laughs> film at TIFF that I dramatically disagreed with the critical discourse on. Huh. Okay. Interesting. I'm really curious to see it, especially because people were saying good things at the start. I'm just like, Oh, I just want to check it out. I, I didn't, I had never heard of it before Toronto. Obviously, I know the filmmaker, but I didn't know it was ready, and so I'm I'm very curious to check it out. Yeah, and he's an interesting visual stylist. It, it's for yeah. sure worth checking out. Um, I just I I thought it was a very empty exercise. Interesting. Okay, is there anything else from Toronto that we would have crossed over on that you might have seen? Did you see Marriage Story or? Yep. Did yep. you see? Um, uh, did this play in Toronto? Waiting for the Barbarians. Did that play in? Toronto? That one did not play in Toronto. No. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think. Of, oh, then the laundromat. Did you see that? That one I intentionally skipped just because it's playing on Netflix so soon. And with a lineup as vast as Toronto's, I try not to see any film that'll open um, domestically in the next several weeks. So yeah. I intentionally skipped uh, the laundromat, the goldfinch, Judy, and um, I think Lucy in the Sky was the other one. Okay. Okay. Apparently, and I have, I've since seen Judy, but the other ones I have not seen yet. Yeah, so the other ones, especially Lucy and this guy, everyone kind of was negative. I don't think you really missed much there anyway. Um, well, okay, then let's let's talk about uh, uh, Marriage Story, because that's that was actually probably my number one of Venice. Yep, I, we agree. I, it was my number one of Tiff. Yeah, I loved it. And the weird thing is I, I, I've generally liked or loved most of Noah Baumbach's films anyway, and I kind of had the feeling, like, oh, this is going to be good, especially when they put those two teasers out. I'm like, oh, I got a good feeling about this. But it just, it just was like a full-on full home run. Just everything was nailed in terms of the feeling, the mood. The, the humor, I think, really made it go from like, okay, this is good, to, oh, my God, you, you've really hit something here that is uh, beautifully gets into the nuances of marriage. Not that I'm married, but just the, what he's trying to present with it. And that the humor takes it from being something that could be so depressing and, and just almost like, sad to watch to make it into something that is gives you this like little spark of joy which i guess was uh soderbergh's uh, soderbergh um baumbach's goal sorry thinking of laundromat again but no uh uh baumbach's goal was to make a love story through a divorce story as he said in the quote 
And I think he really achieved that through the humor and through the, through the, the balance of um, making you feel their love, even though there's all this horrible divorce crap going on. There's like a whole segment in the middle about the, the legal troubles of divorce, which is where essentially the hate for each other comes from because it's such an annoying system to go through. Um, but I lo- there was also this scene, um, uh, and I don't know if you felt the same way or if something happened in Toronto, but the scene where they, they're, they're arguing, and that's all I'll say for not giving away too much, where there's this huge back and forth fight in Los Angeles, and I wanted to just stand up and just cheer and applaud that scene. It was so beautifully cut and so uh, impactful in the way they're yelling at each other. <laughs> Which is weird because you're like, I don't want to enjoy a scene where they're yelling at each other, but I enjoyed that scene. I I totally agree. I thought that scene was a powerhouse. You know, there. I generally think the best moment of acting I've ever seen in my life is the um, is the, you know, I've I've abandoned my child uh, scene in There Will Be Blood with Daniel Day Lewis where he's screaming at Paul Dano, and there have only been a few scenes in my life that have at least reminded me of that sort of level of pure anguish an actor can reach. And I'll say that the scene you're talking about, I feel like Adam Driver reached that for me. Yeah, yeah. And I, the thing is, I have this thing with Adam Driver where I, I love him and I love him in every film, but I feel like he's hard at expressing his emotion. Like yeah. you, never, you never really see it. And finally in Marriage Story, I'm like, he got there. Especially at the, at the later half, I'm like, he's giving this... He's giving these emotions that are actually like making me want to cry in unison with him because I finally feel it. And he's otherwise a perfect actor. And then he hits those extra notes. And I want to know how to bounce back get that out of him because he's, he's worked with so many talented directors and not all of them can get that out of him. What was it particularly about Marriage Story that was able to get that depth out of it? And I know with Scarlett Johansson, she talked about it in the, one of the press conferences that she was going through her own divorce similarly at the same time. And that brought a lot to her performance. And I don't think it's the same with Adam, so I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, I mean, the other thing about Marriage Story I think about is will the public and will people watching it on Netflix rea- uh, sorry, react as strongly as we did? Um, and, and I'm worried, and I don't, I don't want to say the theatrical experience at the festival made it for me, but just being like lost in the film made it for me. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying there. And I think this will also be a case with The Two Popes also being a Netflix movie largely based around just the conversations between two people. Um, I think they're both movies that you have to watch in the right way. You know, you have to be willing to have the the commitment of putting your phone in a different room and, you know, trying to watch it in one sitting. And Yeah. Is The Two Pubs good? That's another one that wasn't in Venice that I was really looking forward to seeing, but everyone at Telluride also loved it. Yeah, I really love the two pubs. Um, so I'll just tell you real fast. I had I had seven movies from TIFF that I feel like were a kind of definitive top seven. These are all incredible films. And they are in order. Number one, Marriage Story. Number two, Parasite. Number three, Knives Out. Number mm-hmm. four, Ford v. Ferrari. Number mm-hmm. five, Uncut Gems. Number six, Dolomite is my name. And number seven, The Two Popes. Uh, I want to see five of these. Parasite is already in my like number one of the year, so I'm you know, and Marriage Story as well is in my top five. But the the, the other five you mentioned, I'm like, damn it, I want to see these now. Dolomite is unexpectedly loved by everyone. I was not. It, it's just happening. a riot. It is so much fun to watch. And are are you ready for a bold prediction? <laughs> Bring it. I think it's going to be by far the biggest original film hit Netflix has ever had. I think it will dwarf anything that any of these like Sandler movies or Bright or any of those did. I think that people 
not just not only will they watch this film, but this they will rewatch the shit out of this movie. Mm. I've heard that. I, I think it was um, Sasha Stone from uh, Awards Daily was already tweeting about it like today, saying I can't. Can't wait to watch it over and over. And I'm like, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> I think we'll end up getting some report from Netflix in like late November, early December that it's by far the most streamed movie in the history of the sun. Wow. That's exciting though. <laughs> like, cause I, 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 I guess I wasn't expecting that. I thought people would, I thought it would be a mix. I thought people would like, some people would love it and some people would just be kind of like, oh, it was okay. Or it was, cause typically that kind of, um, it's not a biopic really, but like the, the, the historical, you know, exploration of a particular person yeah. is usually pretty mixed. Um, well, I think it's everything that people kind of look for in what to watch at home. You know, it's a comedy. It has a star that people, you know, mostly love and have a prior relationship with. It has a very easy elevator pitch, easy to understand idea of what you're getting into. It will hugely appeal, I think, to young audiences that like things ironically or that want a movie to get high to or, you know, what have you. It also, I think, have a huge appeal for older audiences that remember the black exploitation era. Yeah. This all makes sense. I'm really looking forward to it. I, I think it's on later this month. No, maybe it's November when it comes out. I want to say it's later this month. I think that uh, I can check this real fast. I, I want to say it's like October 25th, 27th, somewhere in there. Yeah, they're doing a thing where it's like in theaters, I think, right now, and then it comes yeah. on Netflix in a few more weeks. Um, yep. Yeah, because I, I, I've heard people talking about it, and I keep thinking like, oh, can I see it? And then it's not available yet. Uh, yeah, it looks like it's October 25th on Netflix. Yep, October 25th on Netflix. Yeah, and um, I think, you know, it's, it's way too early to make any declarative Oscar statements about who's going to win anything. But if I were actually forced to bet money on someone winning Best Actor right now, I would put it on Eddie Murphy. <laughs> to win, though. To win. I, for a few reasons. One, I think he's going to have the huge comeback narrative that people love. Mm -hmm. Two, as I said, I think this movie is just going to be a huge zeitgeist hit for Netflix that everyone is going to watch. Three, the, um, he's hosting Saturday Night Live in December, which you know, is going to be during the height of campaign season, and that's going to be mm -hmm. huge for him. And four, and I don't think this can be discounted, for as stacked as this year's Best Actor lineup is, and it is a really deep field, they're almost all actors in drama, which means that Eddie Murphy, I think, will easily win the Golden Globe for comedy. Right. And because sense. of the dates this year with the Oscar voting and positioning, the Golden Globe uh, ceremony, I think, is in the exact middle of the week of nomination voting for the Oscars. So the voters will see Murphy win the Globe, I think. Um, and that'll be huge. Now, the, the the one caveat to that is I could imagine the Globes or the Hollywood Foreign Press Association um, deciding that Pain and Glory is a comedy. If that happens, Antonio Banderas could also easily win that. Um, so it just depends where that gets slotted, whether it's a comedy or a drama. Interesting. Um, this makes me want to ask, then, is Knives Out similarly going to be universally as embraced as Dolomite? Um... Yes and no. I think it has just as much universal appeal. Uh, I am worried that Knives Out will um, get uh, what I have started calling first manned, which is when conservative media decides to try and destroy a film based on um, what it perceives as a liberal ideology of the film. 
Right, and I, I've heard that about it, but I, I have no idea what anyone actually means because everyone kind of is vague about it. And I don't yeah. want to I want to go in fresh, but I'm like, I'm like, what does that mean? Why is the, why is there this like liberal edge to it? Of course, well, I, Alex, I, I are believe you Ryan Gosling. My ability to tell you what the liberal ideology is. Well, no, but <laughs> <laughs> I also, like I said, I also want to go in fresh. It's just like no, I understand. I, I won't spoil it for you. I'll just say that um, there there is a. Um, a major world um, liberal issue that is uh, weaved into the central narrative of the film very, very um, thoroughly and well done. Ooh, I'm not even more excited now to see it. Wow, okay. Mm, I'm interested. This is because Knives Out was the other one that I, I think really made me sad that I couldn't see it at any of these festivals. I have no idea when I'm going to see it. I don't think it opens in Europe for a while. I know they have a position in the U.S. in Thanksgiving, which is the perfect time for it, but like, yeah. I don't know when the heck I'm yeah. going to see it, and I'm dying to see it. Um, because I also, there was someone who said Knives Out wasn't going to be good before Toronto, and then everyone came out of that screening being like, it's incredible, and I was like, great. I think they were worried that Ryan Johnson was going back to something that wouldn't have been truly what he should be doing but i am confident in him. i think i think no matter what people say about uh the last jedi i think he's he's fully confident in his own abilities that he can do anything at this point and, and knock it out of the park yeah i agree and i have liked um all of his films i think this is by far his best film and also his best work as a writer wow okay Really? <laughs> this even wow. Okay, this is this is uh, exciting to hear because I you're the first one who's said that much. Like even over Brick. Yeah, and like I said, I liked Brick. Now, to be fair, I haven't seen Brick since probably 2006. It's one I right. should rewatch. Right. Right. Um, so it's not exactly fresh in my mind. But no, I I think this is definitely his best film. Interesting. Okay. Um, did you also see this film, The Burnt Orange Heresy, in Toronto? I did not. I missed that one. I wanted to see it. Did you see it at Venice? Yeah, I did. And um, it's a very strange film that has some major problems. The third act is really bad. It almost ruins the whole film, but it doesn't. But it's also one of those films that continues to stick with me and grow the more I think about it. Um, which is kind of like what you're saying with thinking about it in my review. I took a, a whole day to think about it before I wrote my, my review and also talk about it with other people because there's, there's this like really tricky writing to it that uh, a lot of it is hidden within a few lines of dialogue that I need to see again to pick up on. But, but it's like I don't want to totally dismiss it because of this stuff that happens in the third act, but I also really love some of the pieces to it. It's basically this like mysterious art story where this... Um, uh, art critic guy uh, meets a woman and then ends up at this villa in on Lake Como in Italy uh, where he meets this like long lost artist and that's as much as I'll say and it's just this there's a, a a big segment at the beginning that's criticizing criticism which was great in a in a more intelligent way than the um, I always forget the name the film that is Sundance this year uh, that was also about art critics criticism um, uh, the really wacky one. <laughs> I'm not sure which one that is. Uh, let me look it up real quickly. Um, uh, oh, Velvet Buzzsaw. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's on Netflix, and I, it's just been. Yeah. In my, I haven't watched it yet. I need. To I don't. I don't think you'll like it, but uh, 
it's actually a much better version of the the, the way it talks about film. Uh, or, sorry, not film criticism, but art criticism. It's a, it's a much more intelligent breakdown of it and the point of criticism. And then it and then it takes that and transitions into this discussion about art and basically what is art. And I wrote this in my review, but uh, there's this uh, segment of the Netflix series um, Love, Death, and Robots. Um, one of the segments is called Zima Blue, which is also about an artist. This basically borrows a lot of that idea. There's literally Zima Blue references galore in it. Even though it's based on a novel that was written before Zima Blue existed, this seems to borrow a lot from that in this idea where you question the point of art and what it really is and what the meaning of it is. And that whole theme in The Burnt Orange Heresy really, really has just like lingered in my mind ever since I saw it and made me think a lot more about not only the importance of this film and what it's trying to say, but literally everything I watch now is like, how does this relate to what this film said about art and its meaning and its greatness within society and its impact within society? Um, and I love when a film does that, even though it's not the best film and it has some issues, I like how much it is still sticking with me. And I like how much it still makes me think about things beyond just that film, but also how it relates to everything else. I, I don't know. That's why I was asking you about it, because I know the reactions to it have been kind of all over. And I'm wondering if there's anyone else who feels like me, like there's just something about it that they think about, even though it's not the best film. As soon as I saw that Mick Jagger was in the movie, I immediately hoped that it would go into sort of yesterday territory. And assuming that Mick Jagger is not playing himself, then theoretically that movie exists in a universe where the Rolling Stones never were. <laughs> well, interesting. It's, that's never addressed. He isn't playing himself. He's playing like a, a, a famous art collector, but he's, he's, he's like, he's basically two, two scenes in it and it's not really that major. And it's, it's more of one of those like, look, it's Mick Jagger, not not actually a performance <laughs> you really care about. Um, so, so, what were your favorite films at Venice besides Marriage Story and Joker? Um, the other one I really loved was Baby Teeth, uh, which is this Australian drama. Um, well, it's more of a drama comedy, uh, and it's directed by a woman, Shannon Murphy, and it won, I think one of the best young actor awards, which is strange because they gave it to the, the guy in the film when the lead woman, uh, Eliza Scanlon, she's incredible in this film. And she plays this young teenage girl with cancer. And as much as I don't want to say that, that's a, it's, it's not a revealed thing. It's one of those consistent parts of the film throughout it. And what I love about this film is that it's not one of these dour, like cancer films where you're just sad the whole time. It's actually this like really... Uh, refreshing, uplifting, and very comedic look at uh, what it's like to deal with that. And also, she she meets this guy and falls in love with him, who's this like rascal character. And her parents don't approve of this guy, but they both you know enjoy spending each their time with each other. Mm -hmm. So they kind of let it go, and it plays in so well. And there's just really strong, upbeat vibe to it. Not only in music choices, but in the editing. And there's these title cards that are just like words. And at first you're like, this is weird. But then by the time you get to the couple of them in the middle, you're like, this is great. <laughs> the way she's, uh, the, the director, I mean, the way she's pulling you into this story and taking you through these beats, through these little moments, um, not only big moments where they're actually talking things out, but little subtle moments where she's, like there's a moment where she's just, the sun is coming in through the window and she's just staring out at it and it just comes across her face. And it's this really subtle but stunning moment of, uh, intricate character you know introspection on what's what's going in her mind without actually having to say anything there's those little moments in it um it's just a, it's a really like i don't know i just really loved every piece of it despite not 
wanting to, but by the end, I'm like, I can't help but admit I love it. Um, and I really wanted it to get more than the one award it got. Um, and I, I think it's one of those films that didn't play Toronto, and I have no idea why it didn't play Toronto. Yeah, it's not. I don't recognize that name from the Toronto lineup, so I don't think it did either. It's, it's um, the only other major name in it. Well, I mean, it's all Australian actors, but the biggest name is Ben Mendelsohn, who it was yeah. one of those, like, he's, it's his first time in 10 years he's gone back to Australia to make a film. And he's, I think he's his best in years in this. Because I, I obviously got really attached to him after Animal Kingdom. And I think that's one of his best performances that he may not have talked yet, despite all of his Star Wars roles and everything. And this is one of him as close to Animal Kingdom as he can be. Not a not playing a bad guy, but that level of like nuancing his little little ticks and performances, not the like big showy performances he's been giving in all these Hollywood movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I love seeing him in that kind of smaller role again. And uh, he's if if they want to sell him on or if they want to sell this film on Ben Mendelsohn, like go ahead because I just want more people to see it. Um, the other the other one I'm, I'm trying to think because a lot of the films there I saw were kind of mixed. Uh, uh, I know I'm not the only one who feels this way, but the Venice lineup wasn't as strong as it has been. And there were a couple of real highlights, obviously Marriage Story, but everything else was kind of mixed on it. Uh, Something I was really that, surprised by this year was how many of the major films at Toronto were world premieres there, which you know meant obviously that they didn't go to Venice or to Telluride. It, it seemed like Toronto got a lot uh, more yeah. high-profile world premieres this year than they had in the past. Yeah, and that's what that's what was strange about it because uh, I thought I would have thought Ford v Ferrari would have been there. I would have thought um, like even first especially hours. given the European subject matter yeah. of the film. But I don't know if you heard about this. I read an article at the end of Venice that I, I it might have been First Cow. It was an A twenty four film. Apparently, it was accepted at the festival, but they pulled it from the festival, the A twenty four, because and this is from the trade article I read that they didn't have international distribution yet. Mm. Which the reason why they couldn't play it at the festival without international distribution is that uh, the money involved to hold a press junket for it is usually paid by the international distributor. And mm. A24 couldn't afford that, so they just said, we're going to pull the film from the lineup, which I thought was like a crazy thing to do. But uh, I've heard that from A24 before. I've heard, uh, um, I know one of the, the, the women who works there, and she told me once that they pulled a film from Cannes because they didn't think it would be a good idea to play it there as in half the world react to it at that festival, they would rather just play it under the radar as a regular release. Which I there's thought was so really many fascinating. films. Yeah. There's so many films that I wish you could get, you know, their their distribution strategist to tell you frankly why they went to one festival and not the yeah. other. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, obviously that will never happen, but there are a lot of <laughs> cases where I really wish you could get honest answers for some of those strange things. Yeah. I would love to know that too. <laughs> I mean, I know Toronto has power at this point. They've kind of uh, taken the the lead in being one of the the dominant over Telluride and and Venice. They, I, I think Toronto has a, a huge ego, which can both benefit and, and hurt them in a way where they're like, "We are Toronto," and that means yeah. they play everything. They play they play what? It's like three hundred films. So it's yeah. basically like everything. And I was, I was talking to a, a, um, a friend I have in the industry before the festival, and I, and I told her that. I said, uh, Toronto is great because it's great and it's bad. The, the, the 50 films everyone knows about get all the attention, but the 250 other films there you just never hear about. Yep. You know, no one, I mean, people see them, obviously, but it's just 
there's never a chance for them to break through that that discussion of these other 50 big ones that are there. Should we talk about some of those? Yeah, because I want to know, is there anything that you've like really discovered as a, as a... I mean, I know you said the, the seven are all that we were familiar with, but anything else that you've Yeah, most are pretty major ones. Yeah, I mean, so, well, I saw a lot. I saw 40 films there. Um, two, <laughs> I would say, that are not... Um, not well known about that i really liked um one was the film that won their midnight madness competition uh called oh, yeah. platform yeah yeah, yeah, which yeah. Is a spanish film um which is about um income and resource inequality and it's very heavy-handed in its metaphor but because the whole film is about its own metaphor it it's able to to go the distance with it sort of and and really take it to its logical conclusion in um pretty gruesome ways that that it's a very daring film i think i loved it i'm seeing it here in stitches i I can't wait oh nice and then um the other i guess uh film i really liked in toronto that is far less known about is um a french film called proxima starring eva green which i know was in the the short list of three films they considered to submit to the Oscars, which ultimately went to Les Miserables. Mm-hmm. Have you Proxima. seen Les Miserables? Yeah, I saw that in Toronto as well, and I really liked oh. it. Yeah, me too. I, you know, the the debate about um, Les Mis versus Portrait of a Lady on Fire, both of which I saw on TIFF, both of which I loved, I, it, it seems like such a non-debate to me because <laughs> I think either one of them would have easily gotten a nomination, and either one of them will absolutely lose the Oscar to Parasite. <laughs> so I don't really right. see what the stakes are for this debate. I mean, ultimately, the only stakes are which one gets the profile boost for box office business. Sure. That makes sense. And I honestly think Portrait of a Lady on Fire is going to do well no matter what. It yeah. just has this momentum behind it. But yeah. Um, Les Miserables, to me, I think, needs more of that momentum. It had a, I loved it in Cannes, but I know it had a mixed reaction in Cannes, and it won one of the major awards, but I don't think a lot of people are like really into it yet, and I hope it gets more attention through this. Yeah, I'm happy people will see it now, because, uh, I, like I said, I do think it will be one of the five nominees. At the very worst, it'll get on the short list. Right, right. But I expect it to be one of the five nominees, and I'm happy that this means people will see it. Yeah. And especially that it'll be a nice profile boost to the filmmaker. Yeah, for sure. Um, but uh, go back to Proxima. I wanted to, to hear your thoughts on it. I actually saw it recently in San Sebastian, but um, I'm very curious to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, just to, I guess, give the listeners a, a super brief overview. Uh, Eva Green plays a, a French astronaut who's preparing to go to space. I think it's for a year or two. Um, and she has, what, probably like an eight or 10-year-old daughter somewhere in that range. Yeah, And it's yep. just a story about a, a mother preparing to leave uh, her child for a long duration in space and kind of the 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 cross between uh, ambition and uh, parental duty. And it's, it's, it's a small movie, but I thought it was really moving. And I especially yeah. loved, um, like it has a great music cue at the end with a great final shot that really, you know, I think ends the movie in a fantastic way. And Eva Green is very good in it. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was a good emotional experience. Yeah, that one, that one really was a pleasant surprise for me too. I don't know why I was not expecting to like it, uh, and then by the end, I was like, "Well, this is really good." Yeah, <laughs> my girlfriend at the at the San Sebastian loved it, uh, and she was just raving about it. And she, I think, she attached a lot to the subtle emotions that are portrayed through Eva Green's performance, but also through the fact that the filmmaking, I think, think partially or definitely because it's made by a woman, like brings these out in a way that 
I guess I would admit that I just didn't see and that she picked up on a lot more than me and that made a major difference for her. She just, I, I mean, I love that when that happens, when I'm like kind of, you know, warm on something and she loves it or someone else just loves it. I just want to hear what they're, mm-hmm. what truly drove them about it because sometimes it can change my feelings on it when I hear what they found in it. Um, that's why I was curious what you, what you were, were thinking about. It. And that's another one I do hope people pick up on because there's so many, there's like three or four really big uh, astronaut movies this year. There's obviously Ad Astra and then Lucy in the Sky and this one. Yeah. I think there's one other one, but there's just like, the, you know, of course one of them's going to get lost in the mix and I hope it's not this one. Yeah, and I don't think this one has U.S. distribution yet. And, you know, it almost makes me wish that France would have picked that one to submit to the Oscars because it's not going to be a problem to get Portrait of a Lady on Fire or Way Miz into theaters, whereas this one it might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, it, I, I want to ask about more films, but I also want to ask you another question. You've been to Toronto. Have you been to Sundance? Yeah, so I was the publications editor at Sundance for three years. So I spent three long winters in Utah um, for the 2016, 17, and 18 festivals. Okay, cool. So my question then is, is there a festival you haven't been to that you're dying to go to that like you've heard about or you just really want to go to? Oh, for sure. I mean, Sundance and Toronto are the only two major, major festivals I've been to. So I have not been to Cannes, Venice, Telluride, New York, Berlin. I, I would love to go to all of them. <laughs> Ooh, so you're a real film <laughs> festival nerd then if you want to go to all of these. Because <laughs> it's, it's hard to get people to like want to come to Venice, uh, oh, sorry, not Venice, but to Cannes unless they're like a true international cinephile who could oh yeah and, and i am and also i mean you know there's so much french heritage in my in my family that you know i i would really love to go to can one day cool i hope it happens because i think you'll have a particularly unique experience there more than any other festival like not only the history of it but just the way the festival operates yeah um and i i genuinely love can i uh, yeah this is i've been going 10 years now that i i've figured out the system and that although there are a lot of annoying parts about it i still just enjoy the way it operates and runs and you can just go in as press and just see 30 incredible films a a couple terrible films you know and just go along for the ride of being there in this little beach town for two weeks and and also just the atmosphere of it um but that i mean look every festival i've ever been to the atmosphere of the festival is what makes it what it is telluride especially is also a -a one-of-a-kind festival where that like mountain town vibe where there's no paparazzi there's no red carpets there's just this cinema thing is what makes that one so so really really special uh, in the way it operates and it is like the rich white people festival but it's also <laughs> yeah. like the the uh um, i don't want to say american but just the the cinema feel there is so strong you know it's all the filmmakers love going to tell you right all the all the celebrities love going to Telluride because you're just there to, to get sucked into cinema and lose you know, yourself in that experience of actually watching the films. Not the red carpet, not the, the hype of it, but the actual watching of them that I think uh, is truly the most pure and incredible part of the film festivals. I say that because, of course, Cannes and Toronto and Sundance all have red carpets and they make a big deal out of it. But to me, I'm just there to watch films. That's all I really, truly care about. Can I ask you a strange question about Cannes? Sure. <laughs> for films that are not in either French or English, for example, Parasite, mm-hmm. when you go to Parasite, what language is it subtitled in? Uh, they, they subtitle it in both, uh, French and English. So, and so, um, are, so like, are there different screenings for each set of subtitles, or are literally both sets of subtitles on the screen at the no, same time? No, it's, 
that's a that's a funny question because I, I think that was something I would have wondered having never been before. But now that I've been to all these international festivals, I'm used to it. So every international festival that's not uh, based in America that has to have English because the general language for all other international attendees around the world is English. So like if you're a Japanese person watching a film in Spain, you have to have an English translation. Mm-hmm. So uh, what all of these film festivals do is basically double um, subtitling. What they do is there's the subtitle that's on the screen, which is usually the language of the country that the festival's in. So either French or here Spanish. And then below it, they add this little uh, white fabric subtitle bar. Oh, wow. It gets, it gets like specially, below the actual screen? Yeah. It gets huh. specially installed. And they, and they also install a separate projector. And this projector simultaneously projects the English subtitles on that little screen. Oh, that's um, fascinating. So like when you see yeah. Parasite at Cannes, on the actual movie theater screen are the French subtitles, and yes. on this little bar below are English subtitles. Yeah. And it's, that's so the, funny. The only funny thing is that uh, usually, in the, kind of what you were asking in your previous question, usually every screening has both, both of them. But in Cannes specifically, some of the screening venues don't have that little bar installed. And you may end up only being able to see the French subtitled version. But that's really <laughs> rare, and you have to look. It's like it's only the Critics Week sidebar that I've had that trouble with. Where like um, they use some of these off-site venues that are like just just one-screen art house cinemas, and these places like just don't have the ability to install that. So they just it is usually like the second or third time they're showing this film. So in those gotcha. ones, they're just like, oh, we'll show it, and and all they can do is French, and it's really annoying because I'm like. Man, this is my only chance to see this movie. Now I have no idea what's going on. Um, but a lot of festivals, it's basically like a requirement because they know they'll get in trouble if they don't present the English version. But they also right. know they have to present their local language. So it's always double subtitled. So another quick question with that. Because yeah. um, you said this bar that has the English subtitles is, is basically right below the screen. Mm-hmm. Do you ever find that it's almost taking your eyes a little too far away from the screen that you're you're missing things you know visual things in the film that are happening on screen yes but not but i'm i can only speak for myself i'm used to reading subtitles by now okay you know maybe 50 percent of all films i see are subtitled so i am i've i've like perfected the art of reading and then watching (laughs) you know like a lot of the times uh this is i almost want to do a whole podcast just on subtitle films but a lot of the times (laughs) i'll be watching a film and depending on, on how the subtitling works, like if it's good or bad, the subtitle will appear. I'll read the full subtitle before the person has a chance to speak that line. And then I'll go back to listening and watching them speak the line, knowing what it is they're saying, and yeah. then seeing them say that. Um, and that's just because I'm so used to this system. But uh, you, the, what I thought you were going to ask, which is a similar question and answer, is basically um, my girlfriend has trouble seeing the lower bar. Because sometimes she'll sit in the audience, it'll be the tall people will sit in front of Oh, yeah, of course. And she can't see it, and it's, like, so low, and it's, so it's, it's kind of annoying. Um, and only in San Sebastian once did I actually think, like, man, I think it was because I was in the third row, and I was way too close to the screen. I was like, man, I'm literally moving my head up and down <laughs> to continue to read it. But as long as you're in a good seat, most of these venues are pretty – the bar isn't that low. It's just, like, right yeah. below the screen. So you can generally – it doesn't feel that that distance, and it, and of so course it's just a, it's a, it is a necessity. Like, um, there's always this moment before every film starts that I'm like, I hope there's English subtitles, you know, because you you just every time I go to a film that's in a foreign festival, I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, I don't know if they put the correct DCP in, like, I don't know if everything's working correctly, and 
it's the worst experience when you're in a film, you're excited to see it, and it's just like suddenly Spanish subtitles and that's it. And you're just like, I, obviously I can't watch this movie, I don't know what's going on, and you, you have nothing to do. You can't do anything, you just have to walk out and either miss it or try to get to another screening, and it's, it's the worst yeah. feeling. Um, that happened to a friend of mine in Toronto, I think in 2010, went to go see the, the, whichever Godard film was there that year. And it just, just wasn't subtitled at all. Like, it was an artistic choice not to subtitle the film. Wow. And he just ended up walking out after 20 minutes like, why am I fucking here? Like, what's the point? The only, the only one I did was, um, there was a Pedro Almodovar movie in Cannes in, like, 2009. And I went to it, and it didn't have English, but it had Spanish. And I just sat through the whole film. I have no idea what it was about. I, I attempted to interpret a whole movie without having no clue what was being said or, or what the subtitle said. And it that was, was not, an interesting exercise. Yeah. I will admit it wasn't good because I really have like, like I, I couldn't really figure out a lot of what was happening. You think you can, and then you're watching and you're like, I don't know. Why did this person just jump over this couch? I have no idea. You know, <laughs> I God, I wonder about someone trying to do that with parasite. That would be so fascinating. Yeah. It's a, it, that would be a great thing is to like put someone in who's never seen it and just be like, what did you make of this? What did you think was going on? <laughs> yep. Um, yep. Okay. Sorry for that sidebar about something. I was just, oh, had always wondered that never remembered to ask somebody. No, no, no. That's, that's a, that's a, it's, it's like I said, it's a funny question because I, I'm so used to it now, but it, it's a, it's a fair question. And honestly, the, the, the big debate I've had with my girlfriend at this last festival at San Sebastian was the idea between um, uh, what festivals truly deserve to be called an international festival. Yeah. Because like, much like airports, like every airport in the U.S. is the, you know, the Denver International Airport. They all yeah. try to say that, but do they really deserve that? Of course, a lot of like Denver is big enough for international flights. But at San Sebastian, we found that 90% of the press are Spanish. You know, half of the lineup is Spanish or Latin America. And we're like, yeah, okay, these are good films, but it was clearly more of a regional thing. A lot of the people who are actually going to films are just there because they're from somewhere in Spain and it's the big festival to go to. And it's just, it's like, yeah, they didn't have enough of a truly international feel. They are, they, San Sebastian's a great festival. I don't want to, to speak poorly of it, but that was something we were having a debate about and thinking about there, which is like, you know, every single town now has a festival. You know, who, who's truly deserving of that claim to the, we're an international, internationally renowned festival. Yeah. Um, for example, the Zurich Film Festival is going on right now. And I have friends who live in Zurich and they're like, we don't go to that festival. And it's like, oh, why not? And he, he told me like, <laughs> oh, it's really, it's more about the red carpet and, and the glitz and glamour than it is the films. And I was like, oh, that's really fascinating. You live there, but you don't even go to the festival. But that can happen with some of these festivals. It's... It's a, it, I'm just doing it because I, I want to go see as many films as I can and go to as many of them. But if I could, I would go to like a specific set. I would go to Sundance, South by Southwest, Cannes, Toronto. I mean, I would, I would go to Telluride and Venice if I could. Just because I love them both and I want to go have the experience at every single one of them. There's all these uh, small documentary festivals I want to go to, uh, like True False, I've heard is so great. I've heard True False is great. The reason I've yeah. never been to that one is because it tends to usually happen on Oscar weekend. And I, you know, I, one of the, the big things I do for work is I write about the Oscars and I, just, I can't miss, you know, Oscar weekend. Yeah. I can't, I can't be stuck at a festival in Missouri during Oscar weekend. Yeah. Well, that's a, there's, there's always that overlap too, like uh, the Rotterdam Film Festival, which I could go to because it's an easy um, trip for me from Berlin. It's the same time as Sundance. So basically, yeah. I'll never go because I'm always going to be at Sundance. And I've always wanted to like go, but I'm like, nah, I can't do it. 
I'm fascinated how this year's accelerated Oscar cycle will affect both Sundance and Berlin, because with the Oscars moved up by two weeks, uh, that's bound to have some dominoes for the festivals around that time. But I know that Sundance is really late again this year. It ends uh, like February 1st again. Yeah. Um, but Berlin is also moved. Berlin is now end of February. I actually think it's perhaps after. Oh, so like three weeks after the Oscars. Yeah, because the Oscars, yeah. I want to say, are like the 8th or 9th or something of February this year. Yeah, and I remember that change is probably good for Berlin because Berlin is struggling a lot with their uh, lineup and their films. Mm -hmm. They were doing good, and they've kind of fallen off the last two or three years. And some of the discussions I've had with some of my friends who go to that is whether there is too much pressure on it, you know, too much pressure to do, to, to participate in the awards cycle and to, to try and program bigger films when really they should be more focused on good films and not, you know, getting that yeah. attention. But of course, you know, festivals have to get that attention to be able to say they're a big festival for this country. So it's a, it's a challenging game for them. And I know Berlin especially is kind of caught right in the middle of it. But I think they also had a huge um, shakeup with the, the executive team there. So it's a new staff this year, uh, not this year, but next year. So it's going to be, no one really knows how it's going to go. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of interesting things going on, and, and yeah. hopefully it'll, it'll run It's well. the same struggle that Sundance has with their world film lineup, is that, you know, it's for the high-end international films, there's just such a stranglehold for them to go to either Cannes or Toronto that it's yeah. hard for festivals to compete. But I, I, my problem with Sundance is international is that I don't have enough time to see them. Yeah. I really, I really, really and, hate and, it. You know, the festival you know? knows that. I know, they, and I, it's, it's not as bad as Telluride purposely programs uh, their schedule in a way you can't see the films. But I know Sundance is just like, I wish I could see all 100, and I, and I have to choose 30. Yeah. You know, and, and then I hear about like nine months later, I'm like, oh, there's this really great film I finally saw. And it's like, oh, it was in the world competition? I had no idea. You yeah, know? I mean, that's happening this year with Monos, which is a film that I haven't yeah, seen yet. And yeah. I honestly just heard about for the first time probably a few weeks ago and then saw that it was at Sundance. It's like, oh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. But that, to me, that, that at least confirms that science is still one of the best in terms of programming. Even yeah. if we don't get to see them, they're still putting those films there. They're still finding them, discovering them, and actually programming them in the lineup, which is what matters, I think, more than anything. Yeah. Well, I don't... I mean, look, we could talk another eight hours about films, but we should probably <laughs> yeah. wrap up Yeah, do you want to do like a quick uh, rapid fire? Any other films? I can go through a quick list of some of the other major ones that I saw in Toronto. Yeah, let me um, let me see. The only other ones I, I would mention off of my list are The Kingmaker, which is this documentary oh, yeah. um, about a, a, a first lady of the Philippines who's very dangerous, uh, which I highly recommend. Um, I also uh, would recommend Martin Eden, which is played in Toronto and it's, it's starting to get a lot of momentum. A lot of critics love Martin Eden. I, I wasn't mm -hmm. a big fan of it, but I, I think it's a great film to um, suggest anyway. Uh, I saw it in Toronto, and I, I was the same. I, I appreciate it, but I wasn't a big fan. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the other one that I'm, I'm, I'm mixed on, but I love the reactions to, is Emma, the new Pablo Lorraine film. Uh, I saw that as well. What did you think? I was not engaged by the story at all, mm -hmm. or the characters at all, but I thought yeah. it was just hypnotic to look at. I love yeah. the visual stuff film i love the way it used music i love the imagery the lighting exactly. um so i you know it's a film that i think is really fun to see and get absorbed by even as you don't particularly care what's happening yeah exactly i agree um then the only other one i'll mention is this film called pelican blood which is a german yeah. thriller i think it also played in toronto um, yeah i did not i didn't hear anything about that one in toronto 
Uh, yeah, I, th- I, I know. I think it was one of them a lot of people didn't put on their schedules. And I know the few people who did go, I saw a couple of the reactions on Twitter. They, they liked it. But um, I just found something really appealing about the way it's like a straightforward, realistic, dramatic story about a woman who adopts a, a child who turns out to be crazy, but it's actually like subtly supernatural horror. And the way that, that, that the, the director brings that into it is really nicely done. It's very, um, it, it doesn't overdo anything and you, you feel caught up in it, but you don't feel like this is a horror film, which is a, a hard thing to pull off. Yeah. Um, so anyway, what, what, are the, what other ones from Toronto would you highlight? Um, well, uh, so Ford Ferrari, um, I just thought was great. It's the perfect Hollywood movie. It's, you know, what we want hollywood to do more often uh i'm i'm really fascinated by how that movie's going to do at the box office because i almost think it's kind of a, a a rubicon moment to see whether audiences are willing to go to films that are not based on pre-existing ip because it's like if they won't go to this one which has you know huge stars has excellent reviews has oscar buzz is about a you know is is exciting. It's about a subject that should appeal to everyone. Like it's like if audiences won't go to that, then maybe Hollywood honestly should just stop trying to make anything other than Batman Nine. <laughs> True. I hope they will. I I think they will. I don't. I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> um, Uncut Gems. I loved. Uh, it reminded me of basically a classic '70s Sydney Lumet film, just on ecstasy. <laughs> awesome. So highly recommend that. Um, the two popes we briefly hit on it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a quiet interior. Well, not exactly interior because a lot of it takes place outside, but it's a quiet movie. That's, that's just, um, you know, conversation between two men, but the acting and dialogue is just so masterful. It's it's, like, this is the type of film that should be taught in screenwriting classes. So I hope people see that. I hope people see it in the right circumstances, even if they're watching it at home. Um, I saw the Malick film, A Hidden Life. Malick can be really hit or miss for me. I didn't like Tree of Life very much, but I loved A Hidden Life. Um, Mm -hmm. Thought it was just beautiful to look at. Uh, Very universal story. Yeah. Pain and Glory, I thought was great. Antonio Banderas is fantastic. I loved the colors and production design of this film. Yeah. I I want his apartment, man. I want to live in that apartment. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Like every, like, you know, it's one of those cases where just like, the, every individual, you know, object in Chachki in his apartment is just yeah. like you want to live in that space. I can't yeah. imagine how much fun it was for those actors to just go on set all day. Yeah. <laughs> um, Waves, the Trey Edward Schultz movie, that was great. Um, it has a big tonal shift right in the middle of the movie that I don't want to say too much about. I didn't think it balanced the two halves very well, but it is consistently gripping and it ends really it, I, I really love the way that it wrapped everything together at the end even though i didn't think until that moment that the two halves connected especially well okay uh beautiful day in the neighborhood is very good um it might be a case where i wanted too much out of the movie i mean especially you know in 2019 being you know living in trump's america it's like you go to this mr rogers movie with tom hanks and you just kind of wanted to save your soul and it mm-hmm. didn't quite get there for me but it is really well done tom hanks is excellent and i love uh some of the choices mariel heller makes in her direction uh there are a few parts where she just really holds on long um looks that are beautifully done 
She's one of my favorite directors right now. I just she I, is. Really yeah. Yeah. I wish all the good things for her. Uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? It was one of my favorite films of last year. I imagine, yeah. you know, you probably connect on this, that and any film about a struggling writer is probably yeah. going to us, but. <laughs> for sure. Um, what else? Uh, Just Mercy, I thought was good. It's one of those movies that is exactly what it is. It's exactly what you expect it to be. Mm-hmm. It, uh, I think Richard Lawson said this on the Little Goldman podcast, that it, that is almost devoid of our, you know, auteur style. It it is just kind of like a piece of journalism come to life, and it, and it's well done. But it's um, don't expect it to be more than um, what it is. Okay. Uh, Jojo Rabbit, I liked. Uh, yeah. I want to see it again before I really commit to what I think about the movie. Mm. But I, I didn't have any major problems with its tone or what it attempted to do. I just found it to be a little disjointed. Okay. But I do want to see it again. Um, I think that covers most of the major films. Oh, Motherless Brooklyn, I thought was good. It got too long. Um, uh-huh. you know, I'm, I'm sure you agree with this, that so much of going to festivals and seeing you know dozens and dozens of films over a period of days, the, the order in which you see things tends to matter and you know what time of day you see things and how you on sleep when you see you know all that matters and i mean motherless brooklyn i think it was like day seven of tiff it was a 9 30 p.m screening and it's a two and a half hour movie and i i struggled to stay awake um in the (laughs) second half and i don't necessarily think that's an indictment of the movie itself and more just about how behind on sleep i was by day seven it is good that we're seeing i want to give it another chance to really see what i think of it when it's you know, when I'm only seeing that film and it's not filmed, you know, 25 out of 40. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Did you see The Lighthouse there? I did see The Lighthouse. I really liked it. It falls a little bit into the Emma category for me where I didn't necessarily care what was happening as much as I just loved looking at the film and kind of being in its trance. Okay, interesting. What did you think? I it's one of my top five of the year, yeah. <laughs> but I but I saw it in Cannes in a I actually saw it at like eight thirty a.m. So which it wasn't the most uh, perfect time to see it, but I'm I'm actually seeing it again here in Sitges in a couple days, um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing if it holds up as much as I think it does in my mind. Uh, but I've also just been really curious about all the reactions ever since Cannes because it was so loved in Cannes that uh, I'm not surprised that that like what you're saying like oh you, a lot of people didn't love it as much as me so um i mean i i thought it was impeccably crafted um i'm i'm working on a piece for vanity fair right now about category fraud and how i think category fraud is going to become kind of a deafening topic this year because by whatever luck of the draw a lot of the films in the oscar race are films that center around two men um be it uh the lighthouse ford ferrari once upon a time in hollywood um uh, there's another one. Why am I not thinking? Oh, the two popes, um, and these are all movies that, you know, the, the lighthouse is the one that I think is most interesting to to look at from this lens because it's a movie that literally there are only two people in the movie. There are only yeah. two actors in the film, and they are both in the whole film. There are a few scenes where Robert Pattinson is by himself, but for the most part, they are both in everything. And you would think that this film should be impervious to category fraud. And yet it still won't be. And there will still be award strategists telling us that Willem Dafoe is the supporting actor. Mm. And I am just kind of fascinated by that. Yeah. 
That's true, but also it, it, it's such a weird game to me. It's more political in terms of who. Oh yeah. Like why they choose this because they think they'll win. I mean, it, it's also the weird thing is like as much noise as we can make about them putting them in the wrong category, nothing will change. Yeah, of course. Just, like, like who who was the authority? Like, can't the academy or can't uh, the the HFPA like say? No, we don't want that then, you know? Well, HFPA is probably the worst defenders of that. But I mean, like, can't the Academy say, well, no, actually, this person isn't, and we're not going to accept that. But I guess they can't. I guess it just kind of plays out that way, and they just accept it, and they just go for it. It's weird. Yeah, and I mean, you know, in some ways, it's a victimless crime. I mean, you know, the victim is going to be like Alan Alda, who won't get a supporting actor nomination for Marriage Story because the supporting actor category is going to be filled with people who are not supporting actors, like Brad Pitt and Anthony Hopkins. Right, right. Um, and and you know, poor Alan Alda. I mean, he's a massively <laughs> successful person that just got a lifetime achievement award from SAG, and it's like, you know, how many tears can you really shed? I I yeah. understand that side of the debate, yeah. but I do think it's sad when we're just, you know, pretending whatever we want to pretend to award whoever we want to award based on more or less nothing. <laughs> True. That is very uh, weird, and and again, something I wish we could actually make a difference about, or or yeah. like something would change in that sense, but it never does. Fortunately, yeah. Um, this is now I want to get you on like later in the year when we're getting deeper into the awards season to have a more intricate discussion on Oscars and awards because I I feel like you have a lot to say on that and that's a whole other topic for sure. Yeah, because... that's that's I guess I consider my area of expertise. I'd love to you know and and like I said with Eddie Murphy, I, I it's too early for any declarative predictions. I'm not predicting Eddie Murphy will win the Oscar. I'm saying if I had to pick someone right now, he is who I think is you know the the safest bet at this moment. But that's um, such a that's it, such a like cool choice because it makes me even more intrigued to see it. But it also, as I've learned from certain awards people, is that the the fact that you stand behind someone like that actually makes a difference. Oh yeah, and and look, you know, I, I think he has a great chance, and I'm very excited to see how the narrative, you know, plays out. But yeah. y you know, I mean, last year, if we were arguing who was the safest bet to win Best Actor, it, we would have said Bradley Cooper, and we would have said that Rami Malek wouldn't even be close to a nomination. So you know, you see how that goes. True, true, true. True. Okay. Well, um, thank you for coming on the show, and thank you for joining me and chatting, and thank you for debating me and engaging in this discussion. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. This was fun. Um, uh, for everyone's listening sake, where can they find you on Twitter and where, I know you I mentioned at the beginning, but is there anywhere else you want to send people to, to read your work or catch up? With uh, you? yeah. So I am, um, at third man movies on Twitter, all one word, a uh, third spelled out T H I R D. Um, I, you can see my, um, uh, Toronto coverage at, uh, Filmotomy, um, filmotomy.com. I also, um, if you're happen to be as diehard a Springsteen fan as I am, I wrote about the Bruce Springsteen documentary for his fan site Backstreets. Um, and beyond that, um, I should, like I said, I'm working on a category fraud piece for Vanity Fair, which uh, I think they want to have up close to probably Thanksgiving or early December. So not exactly soon, but we, you know, when the race really starts to heat up. Um, and what else? I'm working on a piece for The Verge about uh, DC movies and where they should go from here. And that about covers everything. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the works. Um, and as always, everyone can find me at First Showing on Twitter and FirstShowing.net. And uh, I'll be writing from Sitches from now on, and we'll be doing some discussions about uh, Joker and Ad Astra in the next few episodes. So please join and listen in.